Welcome to Elizabeth Zimmerman, part two, Domesticity, Professionalism, and the Artist's Housewife with a nod to Ursula Le Guin. My guest is Dr. Lily Marsh, a textile artist who resides in the Hudson Valley and works to strengthen the fiber supply chain as a founding member of the Hudson Valley Textile Project. She earned her doctoral degree from Purdue University by pursuing original research on the topic of Elizabeth Zimmerman. And I'm so glad to have Dr. Lily back with us today. Thank you so much to those of you who have expressed your enthusiasm for this series. It's very helpful for us to know what's hitting a high note for you and what you'd like to know a little bit more about. If you are feeling very grateful for this content and you are so moved, a great place to make a contribution would be the Hudson Valley Textile Project. They do ongoing work. They're working on a summit uh, and some other things are in the works. So I will put the link to that in our show notes and you can find out how to make a contribution there if you are able to do so. We also have some lively discussion going on on our Ravelry thread. Suzanne, who is so run it, has suggested that we hold a baby surprise jacket knit along, which sounds like a great idea. We're going to start that in March and that knit along will go until we finish this series. So you can join in if you like. You can also make comments and ask questions of Dr. Lily on that Ravelry thread. And as always, we'll have some episode notes, links, and maybe even some images on my website, yarnsatyanhu.com. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lily. It's so good to have you back. Thank you for having me again. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. In part one, we talked about building a context for examining Elizabeth Zimmerman in the United States in the mid-century. We learned context. We learned about how knitting and knitters were being reflected in the publications of the time. And in this episode, we get to meet Elizabeth Zimmerman herself. So I think, first of all, because our listeners may be coming to this with varying degrees of knowledge about Elizabeth Zimmerman, if we could have just like a little bit of crash course. Who was she? When and where did she live? How can we kind of situate her into uh, our understanding of time and place? Well, Elizabeth's story is a really wonderful story. And and as the researcher, I always have such a hard time um, giving a bare bones synopsis because every little piece seems to lead to me down some rabbit hole that just becomes endlessly fascinating. But she was born in England. She was an English woman. She was born August 9th, 1910 in uh, Maid of Vale, which is an area of London. Her mother was Grace Muriel Greenwood. Her father was Herbert Lloyd Jones. She eventually had two younger sisters, Nancy, who was born in 1913, but she died at age 15. She did not live very long. She was an epileptic. And Pringle, another sister who was born in 1918. In those very early days, her family was quite well off, and particularly her grandparents' generation were quite wealthy. Um, but there, her family was very much stuck in that area of the end of that, that social gentility that wealth could offer. With the beginning of World War One, the family starts to seriously decline. Circumstances become much more straightened. Uh, Elizabeth writes in great a great deal about 
the changing class position of her family in those years. A lot of this information, this just very basic information, is straight from the book, uh, Elizabeth's own book, uh, Knitting Around, which was uh, uh, published in 1989 and was... um, a largely autobiographical book of her memories. It's got a lot of her paintings in it and and a, and a fair number of also, of course, knitting patterns and knitting talk. So they do have enough money. They send her to boarding school, but Elizabeth speaks quite frankly about how she was horrifyingly embarrassed by her parents and by the fact that her mother went into business as a, a, social, a social leader that was very unheard of in those days that her mother would go into trade and Elizabeth was horrifyingly embarrassed by that. Um, But her mother starts a business. In fact, it's one that we could use in the pandemic right now because it was Meals by Motor. And it was a central kitchen that provided meals delivered to people who didn't have their own cooks. But she goes to uh, Oakley School. It's a boarding school for girls at Buckhurst Hall in Epping Forest, which is on the northern side of uh, London, at about age eight. One of the things that constantly surprises me is how little, in one sense, Elizabeth actually lived at home. She was at boarding school from about age eight to about age 15 and had summers off and holidays, but was at boarding school. At age 15, uh, her mother made an arrangement with her own European boarding school. Her mother, like most upper middle class women of the time, had gone to a Swiss boarding school for a final year before she came home to get married. And so her mother makes an arrangement with this boarding school. They can't pay the boarding school, but if they take Elizabeth, her mother will try and get uh, more students for her. And she goes to a school called Clairefontaine at age 15. And it's pretty clear that after this, she never really lives at home. She comes back and visits for extended periods, but she never really lives at home. And I think that that's really a key thing in her independence of, of thinking here. After she's in this Swiss boarding school for a year, she she loved it. She talked about how this was the first place that she could stand in front of an easel and paint with a palette on her hand and, and paint while standing up. As a child at Oak Lee, she felt she was very unpopular and she considered herself that her identity even then was as a sort of artsy craftsy little little girl. She wasn't good at sports. She wasn't particularly good at school, but she could make things and she could play the piano. So she sort of had this artistic identity that that became an important way in which she felt valuable to herself. But after she spends another year at on Lake Geneva, she decides that she wants a better art school. And so she decides to go up to Munich and go to the Munich Art Academy which was kind of a big deal. That's the main art school there in in Germany. 1926, she goes up there. She finds when she moves up there that you can't just go to the school. You have to be accepted into the school. And she's not a good enough painter yet. So she ends up getting a place at one of the preparatory schools run by Professor Heyman. She she calls it the Heyman Schule. And she's there in 1928 when she meets Arnold. She cracks an ankle while skiing and she meets Arnold and who she later marries. Um, But his family connections get her into the Munich Art Art Academy under a professor Hesse. By 1928, she's heading into the Munich Art Academy and she stays there until about 1932 when she completes her coursework. It's a little unclear from some of her stories. She tells stories in lots of different places and each one is slightly different. So it's a little hard to figure out what is the actual 
complete fact. But she starts taking a series of nanny slash English speaking companion jobs with some fairly aristocratic European families. At one point, she is interviewed by the Countess Zeppelin to work for a friend of hers, the Countess Elt, in Czechoslovakia. By 1936, she's working in Finland with the family of the, of the Baron von Koskel, knitting and talking and playing with the younger people of the family and speaking English there. In 1936, Arnold, who is still living in Munich, has a fairly narrow escape from the Nazis. She finds out about this, they get together again, and in 1936, in the end, late 36, they get married in England, but because neither family was very happy about them marrying foreigners, they uh, ended up emigrating to the United States. And by October of 37, they're on a boat coming into New York City. They live first around New York City, uh, in 1939, their oldest child, Tom, is born. Uh, Loie, their daughter, is born in 1940. And Meg, Meg Swanson, who becomes then another knitting designer after her mother, she's born in 1942. One of the important places they live in this period on the East Coast was in 1946, they moved to New Hope, Pennsylvania. And it's in New Hope that Elizabeth really finds a, a really thriving artist colony. Uh, George Nakashima is there, the Japanese furniture maker. Julia Child lives there in later years. But it's very much a cosmopolitan, uh, artistic, sophisticated community that she belongs to there. But in 1949, there's a big change for them because Arnold's job closes down and he ends up getting a job working for Joseph Schlitz the brewer in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and they moved to Milwaukee. And this is really a change for them. On the East Coast, Elizabeth, and I think Arnold as well, felt very much that they were living among non-typical Americans. They were living among the immigrant communities and with very, very urban cosmopolitan people. Um, and it's not until they moved to Milwaukee that they realized that this is, this is the first time that they meet real middle Americans. It's a huge surprise to them, I should say. There is, in fact, a really lovely quote that Elizabeth wrote at some length about what a surprise she was if she'd only known that the middle America was, was full of such warm, neighborly, hospitable people that they, she would have felt much better about emigrating in 1939. She wasn't, she wasn't actually very happy about coming to the United States when she originally came because she said that the only thing she knew about Americans was um, their movies, and she didn't like that very much. <laughs> she didn't like American movies. She didn't like American slang. She didn't like the, you know, the sort of swaggering Americans that were the typical people that she saw as Americans. Um, but she loved Milwaukee. She loved meeting the people in Milwaukee. And so uh, they settled down in Milwaukee. And then between 1950 and 1968 is just this huge explosion of creativity for her. She, so many things start happening for her. Sometime between 1950 and 1955, she is, she is already starting her yarn sales business. That's the original business she runs. And she's having her own yarns custom spun, as well as importing yarns from Canada and the Shetland Isles. Uh, in quantities enough to run a mail-order yarn business. In 1955, she sells her first designs uh, and an article on Norwegian ski sweaters to Women's Day magazines. But that same year, she also sells designs to McCall's Needlework and Craft and to the Bernat Handicrafter pamphlet series. 
1955, she starts exhibiting at the at the Wisconsin State Fair. In 1956, Vogue Pattern Magazine, they show her a written out pattern for an Aran sweater, which they don't know what this looks like. And she's never done cables before. And they ask her to figure out how to knit this sweater. And so she does. She spends a, a, a good eight months or so puzzling out how to do cables from these written directions, which nobody knew what this looked like. She returns returns the sweater to them with the Americanized or English version. They publish it. And this is a huge boost for her yarn sale because they don't pay her for the work of the knitting and the publishing it. But they do put in a byline in the magazine about you can get really, you can get good yarn for this from Elizabeth Zimmerman. And she says the resulting orders just about washed them into the into Lake Michigan. There was so much mail there. In 1957, she starts sending off uh, a little newsletter to her earliest newsletter to her mail order customers. In 1958, she's admitted to the Wisconsin Designer Craftsman, which was a fine crafts organization. It never allowed knitters before. In 1959, she starts her own, uh, an expanded newsletter to push her own designs because she's getting a little fed up with the rewriting of her designs. Um, in 1960, she develops a new yarn for knitting uh, Cowichan style sweaters, real bulky sweaters. 1961, she's working on getting reprints of Gladys Thompson's book on Guernsey and Jersey knitting. She's working um, to, she has a little lending library through her newsletter that she sends out books. So she's working real hard. And she's actually quite instrumental in getting a number of people reprinted through Dover, Dover reprints. In 1963, she has her first television appearances. So the first time she gets invited onto a television show, it's a little local morning show. And it was so popular there in Milwaukee that she comes back for like seven or eight times for five, 10 minutes to talk about knitting. And that's so successful, but the, by by the fall of 1965, she's got her own show, The Busy Knitter. It's all over the country. By 69, she does a second series, The Busy Knitter 2. They're both, and they're both still airing as late as the late 70s. So, and then in 1975 is the initial knitting camp in Shell Lake. And this is something that has gone on every year since then. In uh, 71, she puts out her first book, Knitting Without Tears. In 74, it's followed by The Knitter's Almanac. In 1981, she attempts to have a third television show, but PBS thought their production values weren't quite as professional as they'd like them. Uh, so Meg and her husband, Stu Swanson, uh, turned The Knitting Workshop, which was going to be the television show, into a book. And it has huge sales through the home video market. And then in 1989, her last book comes out. It's called Knitting Around. It's largely autobiographical with knitting in it. In 1986, she's invited to teach at the 1987 National Woolcraft Festival in New Zealand. And she, she and Arnold go to New Zealand and drive all over New Zealand. And she has a bunch of teaching jobs there and presentations and but she finally re retires in 1989. Uh, Meg takes over the business and she lives another 10 years. She dies in 1999. NPR, Canadian Public Radio and the New York Times do obituaries. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to encapsulate just how much she had her fingers in every knitting mm -hmm. time possible. Yeah. 
I want to talk a little bit about her early life. What did you discover about her early life that was particularly influential or had a role in shaping her attitude? You've hinted at this a little bit, had a role in shaping her attitude toward domestic and professional life about what it meant to be a woman. For example, you mentioned that she was on high alert about class identity and her mother's role as uh, having a business and working outside the home. So what can you tell us about how her early life shaped her ideas about these things? Elizabeth's early life was, it, it's not quite fair to say it was troubled, but but she talks about it in ways that make it clear she was not a very happy child. And that a lot of this came because of the social difficulties the family was having in holding on to their spot, the spot that they felt they were born into and that they somehow had to hold on to as upper middle class English people. She makes it clear that her mother and her father did not have a particularly happy married life. And that her mother's determination to be a successful businesswoman um, kind of undermined her dad. And at the same time, she says she says in later years that she could understand her mother's accomplishment in this business, which eventually did fold. But, you know, for, for a fair number of years, her mother supported the family through this business venture. But that she kind of wishes, you know, they hadn't been trying so hard to send the kids to boarding school, that Elizabeth would have very much preferred to go to the local public school, and that mm. she would have preferred to be you know, who she thought they were, which were people in trade, which at her little boarding school at Oak Lee, that was, you know, that was just horrifying. I mean, we've all read Jane Austen enough to right. know he's in trade. And it's very much that way. I mean, it's almost stereotypical in a way. She writes quite movingly about her mother. And this, I think, is is quite a, a sad viewpoint on her mother. She writes about, you know, she started out her married life with an upper, an upstairs maid and a cook and someone who came in to do the cleaning and a, and a baby nurse and a governess. And that the really hard part of the day for her mom was when in the morning she had to meet with the cook to decide what the meals were going to be and what we, they were going to have for supper. But that that was all to sort of end for her mom over the next decades, as you know, she lost all that help and she lost, you know, and, and eventually she has no help at all in the family. And, and Elizabeth says she was doing her own laundry in a non-electric washing machine. And so there's this real, this real slide out of prosperity, even though Elizabeth was going to a Swiss boarding school and was living in Munich. They paid for her to go to the Munich Art Academy. As I have read through her life and looked at all the things, she was in this sort of what anthropologists, sociologists talk about, this sort of borderland where these two worlds are sort of sliding against each other and creating a lot of friction, a lot of a lot of confusion among people, which side of which fence are you on? And so as a child, that was a very uncomfortable place for her, but it became a very comfortable place, a place where that allowed her then to work among mm. the aristocratic families as, a, as an artistic English speaker, that she could feel very at home with these people. And at the same time, she's knitting professionally for the shops there. She's making a little money for herself, knitting samples for the shops in Germany and in Europe. So it becomes this place where she is has got some very serious skills 
in straddling multiple worlds. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's so, very interesting. Yeah, because I think that it's pain, it's very painful for her as a child, but it becomes then this, this real strength for her. So can you tell us about Elizabeth Zimmerman's early knitting story, how she came to knitting, what evidence you found of her regarding her early identity as a knitter and then as an artist. And you've, we've talked a little bit about artist is a term that we may use, but it's not one that she used. Yeah. Yeah. That's real interesting. So her origin stories as a knitter was probably at the age of three or four, asking her mom if she could learn to knit because her mom was a knitter. In fact, Elizabeth says that her mother's family knit constantly, knit everything, but that her father's family only knit potholders and mats. And and her mother's family kind of looked down on her father's family because of that. <laughs> there was a, this was not a, these were not happy families. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of tension between the two families. And then her mother, when she asked her mother if she could knit, her mother said, well, if you're good all day today, I'll show you tomorrow. And so she did. She showed her how to knit and she was able to knit well enough by the time in another year or so she goes and she spends a summer with her mother's sisters and her Auntie Pete. She calls her her Auntie Pete. She's wearing Elizabeth is wearing a sweater that she made herself. And she said it was like full of horrible mistakes and odd things. But her Auntie Pete shows her, she says, well, do you want to look at my knitting? Uh, She pulls up four of the skinniest little double pointed needles uh, that she's working on a sock for herself or stockings or something. And it's tiny, tiny, thin little needles. And Elizabeth's just entranced and she begs to be allowed. And in fact, Auntie Pete lets her knit on her stocking for the whole rest of that day until she begs for it back (laughs) the next day because she wants to work (laughs) on it. But that's sort of the origin stories. And then she knit, there's all, there's all sorts of stories about, she had a Swiss baby nurse in the living at home with them. So for her sister, Nancy, and for Pringle then later, Helen Forney, her name was, she showed Elizabeth how to throw with the left hand in the German method. Oh, the continental. Continental, right? So uh, English people always threw with their right hand and Elizabeth's, governess at that point was horrified that she was knitting the German way and forbid it in the household. And yeah. And so um, Elizabeth sort of secretly knit Continental for quite some time, hiding it from her governess. You know, once Mrs. Miss Barrett left uh, their home, she said she didn't stay with them very long, three or four, three or four months, or maybe just a summer that uh, she pretty much knit left-handed for the rest of her life. Yeah. Continental. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about this notion of her description of her, what we would say is artistry and how she uh, used vocabulary to describe that. Sure. Sure. It's important to realize that a word as loaded as artist or artistic can have a bunch of different meanings at different pieces, uh, different parts of time in a culture, right? So Elizabeth, in her early work, talking about herself as a, as a 
unhappy school child trying to sort of carve out a niche for herself in school, talked about having an, she was artistic, that was her identity. But later she never uses that term about herself. Even at art school, she only ever referred to herself as a painter or as a knitter. She never used the term artistic. Her sense of, of being creative was very much tied to what she was doing rather than an attempt to place any sort of value on what she was doing. She described herself as, I'm a painter, I'm a knitter. These are the things I do. These are the products I'm making. I make paintings, I make knitting things, right? But to to claim artist was to put a value on that. Mm -hmm. She didn't really want to either want to claim for herself it's a little unclear because she didn't write about this but this was something actually that Meg Swanson pointed out to me uh in an interview in one of my early interviews with her because I think I must have used the term artistic Uh and she corrected me about her mother never said she was an artist she very much used these other terms um that were much less value laden. In fact, in talking about Arnold's family, who were professional painters and who um, were very well known in in Germany as professional artists, um, she never called them artists. They were painters. Elizabeth and Arnold moved to the U.S. in 1937, as you said, first to New York City then outside of the city, then to New Hope, which is fascinating to me because I grew up very close to there. And you write about her greater capacity for self-awareness at this time and how it coincided with the beginnings of her design work and the way her own language reflects what she expected of herself and what she expected of others. And you use the term critical knitting, which is in the title of your dissertation. How did you arrive at this term and how does it help you make important points about Elizabeth? Well, I want to be clear that the term critical knitting is my own term for what I see she's doing differently. That is not a term she used. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in 1937, um, she she's in the United States. She's working away. She's knitting. She tells several stories. This is one of the points at which there are several versions of this story out in publication where she um, was wanting to uh, knit some things for her children and didn't really like what she saw as patterns. And so she's starting to knit um, little interesting things for the, for the, for the babies. And she uh, is sort of just starting to design on her own and she's kind of pretty pleased with them. She thinks they're pretty cute. And in fact, in uh, 1971, she writes a really interesting memoir So one of the perks of getting to be a researcher is finding things in the archive, right? So when I was doing all this research up at Schoolhouse Press, which was just an archivist's dream because it's like a huge uncatalogued attic full of stuff that pertained to her life. It's just a treasure hunt to be there, you know, and you read everything. You just plain read everything in the box. You look at the back of every piece of paper. You look at the dates, you you do everything. There's a big box that's labeled Knitter's Almanac Drafts. And I'm reading through and they're, they're, you know, they're drafts of the same book, the same book. And then suddenly in about the middle of the pile, there's a stack of about 350 pages that's not at all 
a draft of what became Knitter's Almanac. It's actually the first thing she wrote what was to be Knitter's Almanac, and it's completely different from the published book. So in 1971, she starts in early January, and she writes a couple of pages every day just about what she's thinking about. And some of it's memories, some of it's patterns. There's fish recipes <laughs> and fishing stories. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is just an amazing hodgepodge of a diary that she writes for almost a year. And in this, it was just, and what was amazing was after I finished reading this and I take it to Meg and I say, you know, this is pretty cool. You want to think about it. She had no idea it was there. She had no idea her mother had written this uh, this manuscript as a first version. Anyway, but she writes this wonderful essay that I titled The Three Knitting Cultures. And she writes about when she was in England, you know, one knit as one breathed in England. And that, you know, there was always help. There was always good yarn. There were all sorts of ideas about knitting. And it was this this very free place. She felt very creative. She felt very much like the boss of her knitting. When she moves to Germany, that's not how people knit in Germany at all. In Germany, you follow directions that are given to you by the knitting shop owner. You tell them what you want to knit and they draw you up big patterns, right? That she said they would whip out big sheets of brown paper and draw out your pattern pieces and mark every place that had to have a decrease or an increase. She had had no idea she was such a bad knitter. <laughs> and that and that, you know, she she became a very good knitter there, but boy did she learn to follow directions because these people were expert. These were master knitters. And then when she moved to the United States, she realizes, well, printed directions here are pretty bad, and there's a lot of mistakes in them, and the yarn shop owner doesn't necessarily know very much. You know, she felt like the level of, of, of knitters that she knew among the immigrants were pretty good, but, but you know, they were not knitting necessarily what she wanted to knit. Um, and she says, I love this. It occurred to me that one might experiment with using one's own brains instead of picking those of others. The result was that our children gradually started to possess better fitting sweaters and stockings and cute knitted shorts than other little kids. The designs were usually original with me, and I was advised to try and market some of my ideas, to which I replied that this was dandy with me if I could find a nice understanding agent who would handle the haggling and correspondence for a modest percentage. So that's where it rested for quite some time. Um, but she talks about regaining her sense of her own abilities, of her own ability to, to visualize what she wanted, to lay out in her mind, to experiment, to decide what she wanted to do and bring it into reality. It's at this point that she knits the Tomton jacket, right? Several of the designs that later become quite important among her work. Are, are just are developed at this time. The other thing that, that she mentions was meeting a man she named Roger Stanier, who it's not clear who he is, and I've never been able to find out much about him. But it sounds like he's somebody, a therapist perhaps, or um, she and Arnold were never churchgoers, I, I don't believe. So, it, But it might have been he was a minister or a just a very understanding friend. I don't know. She credits him with giving her this greater sense of understanding about her family life and about her relationship with her mother. Um, he says a greater sense of understanding and self-awareness regarding her own upbringing and family of origin. And so, so there's a sense that she's 
she's letting go of some of the painfulness of the past and embracing along with this this renewed sense of her own creativity, her own confidence in her ability to design um, that happens for her while she's living in Gardner and Gardnerville in New Hope. Uh, and it probably doesn't hurt that she's living in an artist colony when there's everybody is, is creative in some way. There's a much wider acceptance of what are creative activities, everything from gardening to woodworking, to knitting, to songwriting, to, you know, Julia Child lived there for a while, you know, um, cooking. So that, you know, it can be a little bit like a university town where, you know, every other person is some eccentric genius who's fascinated by something, you know. This combination of feeling a little greater capacity to understand herself and then reflecting on some of the ways that knitting, these different knitting cultures were different. And your assessment that she's she's coming to all of this with some level of maybe not comfort, but experience on a borderland. Yes, yes. She can negotiate. And so this term critical knitting, that's about all of yeah. those things combining. I think of critical knitting as critical thinking, right? Uh, so when we think about critical thinking, we understand that to mean someone who's paying attention to the sources, someone who's asking questions about how do I know this? What are, what's the stuff I am basing my knowledge on? What's the stuff that's not here that I should be basing my knowledge on? It's a very sophisticated form of thinking about knitting. That's what she's doing. She's no longer just pattern following. She's very concerned about her materials. She wants whatever materials she thinks are the right materials for her knitting. She doesn't want to be told by a manufacturer that she has to knit with nylon, right? Mm -hmm. She wants wool. And she wants a lot of her, there's not just one wool, she wants a lot of varieties of wool, right? She wants to knit what she wants to knit. She doesn't want to be told there's one casting on and one casting off. She wants to know what's the best casting off when you're casting off the bottom of a sweater in ribbing? What's the best casting off when you're casting off the top of a sock? What's the best casting off when you might want to pick up that edge later and start off something in another direction? She wants to know five different ways to cast on because you might want to do a toe, a, a sock from the toe up. You might want to do a hat from the from the circular bottom or you might want to do it from the bottom. You might want a stretchy edge or a not stretchy edge. So she's not only collecting materials, she's collecting techniques. Yeah. She wants skills at her fingertips, right? Um, and she wants to have a whole set of design techniques. What are all the ways you could, you could do a neckline? What are all the ways that you could set a sleeve? She doesn't want to do, so this is what I think about critical knitting, right? She is thinking about knitting in a much more sophisticated way that's all about mastering your art form. Right. It's not about opening up a pattern. It says cast on six. So I cast on six and then I do this and then I do that. Oh, and look, it's a sweater, right? She's all about, I want a sweater. I think it'll be a rag one. I think it should have a deck, a, a yoke across the front that I wrote in, in these colors, right? So she's really, she, she writes a lot about being the boss of your knitting. Mm -hmm. And at one point I was trying to work that into my dissertation title, but I could never make that sound good. <laughs> 
but this, but this is a really big deal for her in this in this period, sort of reclaiming knitting as the thing she does. And she does it with knowledge. She does it with sophisticated techniques. And she does it with a sense of the possibilities at any given point. She can choose among five or six different options for, to, for achieving what she wants to achieve. And she knows which option is the better one for what she wants. And these were things that you were saying in the previous episode that the only evidence you saw were in these very proprietary sort of books that magazines where it was encouraged that you would keep these sorts of things yes, a secret. Yes. They were really for yes. if you were selling your designs yes. or you were selling finished garments and things like that. Yes, exactly. She didn't want this to be information behind a gate. Mm-hmm. She wanted this to be Edward's birthright. The boss of your knitting. The boss of your knitting, yeah. So in 1949, they move from the East Coast to the Midwest. You talk here about her realizing differences in what she thought Americans were and what she found them to be. And it's here that she engages in a knitting community. So she had been part of like artistic kind of eclectic eclectic communities, but now it's a knitting community and she starts to cultivate this new appreciation for life in the U.S. So how can, can we see Elizabeth as an active member of a knitting community? What was that like? Was it centered around a yarn store? What was happening at that time? Yes, it very much centered around a yarn store. In fact, it was Sophie Stefanski's yarn shop in Shorewood, Wisconsin, which was a suburb of Milwaukee that they lived in. She talks about you know, when her kids were in school, she would go down to the yard shop and sort of hang out, basically. And she talked about, you know, listening to everybody's tips and giving tips of her own and advice and talking about her knitting. Um, and she talks about understanding at that point what a sad life American knitters led, that that very few of them really knew what they were doing or had any confidence in what they were doing, and that they were really completely dependent on these these, to her mind, kind of crazy knitting instructions, which, you know, weren't very well proofread. They were full of errors. They were full of mistakes. Um, she, she talks at great length about, you know, the fact that American knitters didn't have a lot of technique at their fingertips. And they were purely at the, uh, at the, at the mercy of the manufacturers for what their materials were. And don't forget that, in, that around 1950, after the war, is when rayon starts hitting the market and nylon and acrylic and wool starts getting to be very hard to find in any of the yarn shops. Uh, you know, so they had not much technique and they had terrible materials. Um, well, there's my bias, isn't there? <laughs> she feels so sorry for them. <laughs> But that they had these, you know, very technical, abbreviated K1, P1, tiny print in the back of magazines, knitting directions for, you know, that were just pretty inadequate for anybody who wanted to learn very much about knitting. She starts in. She's She was tremendously gregarious, tremendously gregarious. Um, there's a hilarious story about Arnold. They, while they lived in Milwaukee, they were members of this artistic social club called the Walrus Club, and uh, and uh, it sounds like it sounds like a seriously party place because they had multiple balls all through the year, and and Elizabeth constantly is in the newspaper in these fabulous costumes that she made. <laughs> 
they have a, a New Year's Eve ball and and the Twelfth Night Fashion Ball and and uh, and they, she gets interviewed for the for the newspaper at one point and she talks about um, how her husband is quite an introvert um, but that she's not she does not you know she's she's quite an extrovert it's very funny their their little glimpses of their home life are very sweet they moved to Shorewood in about 1949. And by 1950, she's already starting her yarn business. She's deciding that there's a spot for her, that she knows enough, that she has enough opinions about what people should be doing, that she can start her yarn business. She writes at great length, even then in the early 50s, about not being able to find wool yarn. She hangs out there at Shorewood. In those early days, it's in about 1954, that she starts to agitate to be part of the Wisconsin Designer Craftsman Group, to really show off knitting as a fine craft, the equal of jewelry and glass and pottery and, and weaving as a textile art. In this period, I guess in between about 1950 and 1955, it must be a very busy period for her because the late 50s were just enormous for her. But there's not a lot that I could find about what exactly is happening. So like by 1955, she's already selling designs to Women's Day. So it seems like this this knitting community is like a great way for her to assess what problems and needs and holes there are. She operates very quickly. Yes. Yeah. She slides into that niche really fast and pretty completely. Mm-hmm. Right. By by 1960, she is already doing the first things of all the stuff she ends up doing. Right. Because she's already um, thinking about uh, by 1960, she's already been thinking about a television show. She's been thinking about writing. She's got her newsletter. She's telling stories and knitting patterns to her customers. She's searching out yarns. She's working on getting books made available. She's bringing things over from Europe to sell. So it's this really rich period. But but as you say that about her knitting community, I think there are people that she, there are names that she mentions Ruth Haynes, I think was a neighbor behind hers. Um, and the, and the ladies, she talks about the ladies at Sophie Stefanski's yarn shop, but, but I don't know that she's really not in the way that we think of a bunch of people getting together to knit on Thursday nights with wine. And right. I don't think right. that's quite she's something thing. apart from that. Yeah. A little bit, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. You write that she gradually came to an awareness of the separate um, and distinct knitting cultures, because you talked a little bit about that, her 1971 work. And based on your research, you identify three aspects of her identity. So that's the, the title of this particular part of our series, around which she was constantly negotiating, domestic, professional, artistic. Can you give us some examples of some of these and help us understand how she did that negotiation? So we know she had some prior experience in negotiating, 
But right. how did, because when I think about this, I often see, and I don't know if our listeners will feel the same way, but my gut reaction is that domestic, professional, and artistic are like at loggerheads. Like they they compete or conflict with each other. But the way you write about Elizabeth is she's just got this way of negotiating around those identities. What, yeah, how did you know that? Yeah. What did you see? Yeah. And this is, this is where I maybe should do my nod to Ursula Le Guin, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because I was somebody, and this is, you know, I think it's, we used to think that, that researchers, scholars should not have any personal viewpoint on their research, right? We should all act as if we are, we are faceless professionals, right? Well, we all know that that's just not possible. We can't divorce ourselves to that. So it's better, I think, to expose what your, what your personal bias is in one way. And so in one sense, uh, you know, the, one of the first people that got me thinking about my own creativity, my own passion for making things, and why did I have such a hard time doing that, was the writer Ursula Le Guin. So in the early 80s, before I had read any of Zimmerman's books at all, I had listened to Ursula Le Guin do a talk for a group called the San Francisco City Arts. And what she talked about, it was a tremendously moving and earth-shattering talk for me because she talked about how difficult she found it to be a, a housewife who wrote seriously. And she talked about how many of her group of professional and domestic social community, right? That community of people she lived in considered her a housewife who played at writing. And, and, that, and she talked at great length about there was no more sort of put upon uh, denigrated person than the housewife. And that spoke directly to me about here I was as a housewife trying to take my textile work seriously, trying to take my passions for wool seriously and feeling like everybody just thought that was just playing. And, you know, please just bake some more brownies. You're good at brownies. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, that pushes all of my buttons. <laughs> Doesn't it? Boy, <laughs> does that push our buttons. Yeah. And, and Ursula's talking about that was the first time that I had thought, well, that's the problem. That's my problem. This is why I'm having a hard time. And and Ursula spoke at great length about that. And she was really then the first one who started me thinking about, well, where do we get these ideas about creativity and about independence and agency and identity? Where do how do we generate this idea that if you're a housewife, then you're probably just playing at hobbies and crafts? right? Small sea crafts, and they probably involve crappy yarn and, you know, pops, wooden popsicle sticks, not real art, not craft, you know. The really fascinating thing about Elizabeth is while Ursula felt very much like this was in conflict, Elizabeth didn't. Elizabeth felt liberated by being a housewife. She writes quite extensively about, she just didn't think there was a luckier person in the world because she didn't really have to make money. She just got to do this because it was just fun, you know? She, maybe it's because this was, this was a, a form of creativity that 90% of the world didn't take seriously anyway. 
So it could, it didn't bother her to be considered just playing with it. You know, she writes quite extensively in this period about, you know, just how much fun she was having, you know, that she and she and Arnold were really retired. She was retired, but, you know, she writes about being retired, how happy it was, how happy she was to be retired as she's packing up the boxes for her first book, Knitting Without Tears, and preparing to ship them all over the country to people. You know, <laughs> it's like she has this wonderful sense of like, I'm just having a marvelous time, you know. Um, and so that's one of the big intersections, this this intersection about sort of being this white middle class married woman with three children as the housewife of a professional man. But she's got this overriding creative professional passion. Right. And how does that intersect with feminism? How does that intersect with this emerging sense that American women's lives were pretty seriously constricted in terms of their social, cultural, and even legal choices that they could make for them? And Elizabeth, you know, she skates over that pretty happily in ways that I couldn't. I think that a lot of women of my generation found serious difficulty in, in standing up and saying, you know, I'm a, I am, yes, I'm a happily married woman, but I am also doing these other things. And these are serious. Things. So I think that was like, that's that first intersection, that intersection with domesticity. And she does this. She does the most amazing things. So it starts off in her newsletters, uh, where she, these are all very personal sounding letters to her customers, right? Dear Knitter, you know, and she writes about, oh, you know, Arnold went on a fishing trip and he just loved these socks. So here's a pattern for socks for you, you know, or, you know, the kids really wanted ski sweaters. So she writes at great length that her kids really wanted ski sweaters. And this was her first article published for Women's Day was these three Norwegian ski sweaters that she knit for her kids. And they turned out pretty cool. And I think I should share them with you. And so she does this over and over again. She's referring to her domestic life as driving her creativity. Mm. They aren't in conflict for her. They just aren't. And I think I, that's so wonderful, but it also makes me so jealous. In a sense, yeah. yeah. In a sense, yeah. But then, you know, but then she also writes about feminism in ways that are a little bit hard for me to take, you know. Say she, more about that. Well, she was not a feminist. Mm -hmm. Part of it is very clearly because of her mother. Um, and her mother's efforts at agency and at saving the family finances. Um, in fact, she writes that her mother was a goddamn feminist and that she isn't. She's a masculinist from the word go, right? I mean, she says that outright. She also tells a hilarious story about Arnold gets mad when they go off. They love to go camping together. He was a great fisherman and she would sit on the bank and knit, right? Lifesaver. I, yes, yes. But she, I think she loved camping, too. When they go off camping, Arnold gets so angry when he forgets his cigarettes because he was a smoker. She says, well, I should be really smart and, and just stick in a few extra cartons for him. So, you know, we know we got him. Um, and then she says, but I'm not going to, she says, because then he would expect it and he would be mad at me if I forgot them. It would just cause bad blood. I just won't do it. He could take care of himself. <laughs> It's not like she was an uncomplex, not feminist. She right. was a she's, very... She's thinking about things all the time and yeah. figuring her way through them. Yeah. 
But she felt deeply liberated by her position as housewife. She talked about she didn't need to make money. You know, she um, she only needed to, to, to pay for itself. And she said, and to pay for some extras. And she talks blithely about paying for several trips to Europe for her, for her kids when they were in high school. But then again, she was very serious about intellectual ownership. So that sort of leads into the other two intersections. So the other one that really that really stood out for me was for quite a while she and, and this is particularly in working with the Wisconsin Designer Craftsmen, the organization there in in Milwaukee uh, that represented craftsmen. It was an organization that you had to be juried into. You had to show work, and they had never had knitters. She applied for several years before she gets in. So so this is a group that it would be sort of her equivalent professional organization, but they don't want to let her in. And this is at a time when the, the fine craft movement in the United States is really going through an evolution about how to define themselves. And it happens a lot in, in Wisconsin and, Milwaukee and in Michigan because those were areas of fine furniture making, fine carriage making that moved into cars. There is a tremendous history of fine craftsmen, right? In the sense of skilled artisan work in those upper Midwest cities. But they're moving through this really drastic change for themselves about what does this mean to be professional? And they're negotiating with themselves. You can see this, I got to spend an entire day in the archives of the Milwaukee Art Museum and reading all of their membership requirements from about 1940 to the end of the 70s, I think. You can see in, in rewriting these membership requirements, kind of every couple of years, they kept trying to pin down, what does it mean to be a working artisan? What does it mean to be a craftsman? So this was that second area of trying to be a professional craftsperson that she kind of kept running into the expectations of that organization, right? But she exhibited with them for, for many years. The third area, which gets to be much more sort of, she has a longer term tussle with, is the idea of being a designer in a knitting industry, right? So this isn't the fine craft world. This is a knitting industry that really wasn't very good at negotiating the changes that were ahead of it. It had pretty much ignored the arrival of acrylic yarns. They're not designed to handle the material changes in knitting, nor are they really ready to handle the idea that knitting is not necessarily an attribute of being a woman. Here's Elizabeth, a designer who wants to, to put in good designs and has all sorts of ideas about technique and wants to talk about knitting and in meeting a knitting industry that doesn't really know what to do with that. And in fact, the big blow up that happened for Elizabeth happened in 1958 when she sold uh, Bernat a design for a circle knits yoke sweater that they completely rewrote. Uh, for flat knitting. Her picture of her sweater represented this pattern that they had written. And she was so angry. This is when she starts putting her designs in her newsletter. And so she is up against all the time pushing the knitting industry to 
pay more attention to materials and techniques and to the idea that there could be a lot of options in this pattern, in this project. You could have, you could do many different ways and it would be, might be important to talk about all those ways that you could do this project, right? Um, so those are the three areas, the sort of this idea of her social situation as a housewife, the idea that she was a professional woman trying to achieve some sort of professional recognition within her organization. And then this, this idea that she's a designer who wants credit and who wants better knitting information in an industry that wasn't prepared to give it to her. Mm -hmm. I, it's, I feel like really, that really helps us know her. Yeah, but what's really interesting, and I think, and I didn't realize this really until I was working on these episodes, so that, so that I could lay these all out very clearly in my mind as I'm conceptualizing her, right? As I'm looking at this trail of material she's left, writings, receipts, fan mail, everything, looking at the documents in the Museum of Art in Milwaukee. Um, and I can see these three intersections. I don't think she experienced them separately. I think that this was just an amazing period between about 1950 and the middle, late 60s, in which just enormous things were happening for her. And, and she was pushing on all these fronts. She was pushing the WDC to allow her to exhibit. She was pushing the knitting magazines to accept designs and to accept more text, but actual copy about how you might make choices here. Um, and so, you know, I think she experienced it as a much more sort of holistic kind of period of ferment for herself. You encountered a scholarship not necessarily about knitting as cultural production, but cultural production itself. Do you think Elizabeth's contributions of this period fit into cultural production? Yeah, sure. So let me talk a little bit about cultural production. So cultural production can be thought of in two ways. So there's cultural production and there's cultural reproduction. Cultural reproduction is when we participate in continuing patterns of behavior as individuals and communities which shape us. A pattern of behavior that I might participate in or have participated in is when I got married, I took my husband's name. That's cultural reproduction, right? I am reproducing through this Possibly small, possibly insignificant, possibly not so small, possibly not at all insignificant way of thinking about my role as a woman and what it means to be a wife. Cultural production is when we make those changes which can shed light on the fact that this might actually change how I think about myself and think about my community. So Elizabeth stepping out and saying, I can design my own stuff better than this, is a moment of cultural production. When she steps out and says, God damn it, Bernat changed my sweater pattern. I'm gonna have this new way that I can show people what that pattern was. I'm gonna add this design to my newsletter and give it away. Because I think this is, this is such a great design and people would be interested in it. 
And she takes this little tiny step of agency, which begins this whole back and forth letter to her customers. And she shows them a new way to do something. So that's what cultural reproduction and production is. And we do it with every breath. We are either reinforcing old or innovating new ones. It's not that culture is one way or another. It's the actions we as individuals take. And then when enough individuals are taking that action, then it becomes a community. This is why when Knitter's Magazine comes out and is espousing Elizabeth's ideas about knitting, this is a key moment in cultural production because suddenly there's a magazine a national level magazine that's talking about her ideas. And there's enough people to run a magazine, to be contributors to a magazine, to be uh, advertisers in a magazine, to support now an institution that's lasted for 30 years. That's sort of this path along which one person's tiny step forward, tiny step to decide to do something differently, can lead to institutionalized cultural change. Well, thank you so much for today. Wow, we covered a lot of ground. We did, we did. And there's there's just so much more I want to say about all those topics. (laughs) 